0: This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Pastor Tony has been a mentor and friend in ministry to me uh, for quite some time. And I'm grateful, for, I'm grateful to the Lord for brother pastors like Pastor Tony Um, that God's kindly placed in my life as examples of uh, Christ-exalting, gospel-loving, gentle shepherds of the flock. And you know that because he's your pastor. Um, And so I'm grateful for the examples and influences and to be here today uh, bringing God's word to you is a great joy. Um, I have a question for you as we begin. And the question is this, aren't you thankful that somebody proclaimed the good news about Jesus to you? Aren't you thankful for that? Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was a grandparent. Maybe it was a coworker. Maybe it was a pastor. Maybe it was the radio back in the day when that was popular. Um, for some of you, it still is, but th- those days are passing away. Maybe it was a podcast. Maybe it was a song. Maybe it was a stranger. But I guarantee you this. Based on Romans 10, 14, somebody declared Jesus to you. Because how will they hear without someone Preaching. Someone preached Jesus to you, and God used that proclamation of the gospel to open your blinded eyes, and we're grateful. Each one of us individually, we are grateful. This weekend, we've had the joy of unpacking missional living from the gospel of John at our Body Life Conference here. And so for those of you who who were here, uh, we had a sweet time going through the gospel of John together looking at how to better live on mission we were looking at a few key truths that both motivate missional living and that empower or enable missional living. And we've been pressing into Christ in hopes that we would love him more so that we would speak of him better. Did you hear that? We want to press into Christ so that we would love him more with the end goal of speaking of him better. And you probably already know this, but I need to say this by way of introduction and for the sake of clarity. You being at a healthy Bible-believing church, though, I trust this is old news to you. When we talk about mission or missional living, it's not something we do in a foreign country or on an occasional trip. We don't take trips to live on mission for Jesus. Living on mission is how each and every follower of Jesus are called to live this side of heaven. We've been given one glorious mission. You ready for it? Make Christ known. We have one mission this side of heaven. Make Christ known. Glorify Him. Declare Him and Him crucified, as Paul would say. Now, this absolutely includes things like live your life for the glory of God. Kill sin. Walk by the Spirit. Put off and put on. And that's a different sermon for a different day, right? But we, we must say all that Scripture says, and therefore... Making much of Christ also includes declaring Christ among those who don't yet know him so that they might come to know him. And if we're honest, sometimes we would like to be left alone with just I need to live my life for the glory of God in my own little silo, never having to break out of it because there's risk involved, there's pain involved when I have to go to somebody else and proclaim Christ to them. But we must be thoroughly biblical and say everything that the scripture says. So let me ask you again, aren't you glad that someone lived on mission towards you? Because that's what they did. Somebody actually treated you as a sinner who was under the wrath of God, and if they didn't proclaim Christ to you, your eyes might not be opened, and so they had the faith to proclaim Jesus to you. And aren't you glad that whoever that person was, they obeyed Christ? Aren't you glad that they didn't live in the fear of man and keep their mouth shut? Aren't you glad that they took the risk of offending you momentarily for the sake of your soul eternally? Aren't you glad they stepped out by faith? Because when we talk about living on mission, it is a step of faith. And they proclaim Christ and Him crucified to you. You see, brothers and sisters, if we are followers of Jesus today, It's simply because somebody opened their mouth and declared Christ to us. That's how the gospel has gone forth since Jesus left this earth. Followers of Christ have helped other people follow Christ. And that's how the church of Jesus Christ will continue until the day he returns. And it's not because we're the greatest messengers. Frankly, I think the rocks would do better. But it's God's good plan for building his church that those who know him would make him known. And so I'm gonna call this missional living. It's not original to me, I just think it's a helpful phrase. And I'm I'm going to define it this way, living on mission with Jesus and for Jesus so that more might know him. Living on mission, and I love this, with Jesus. You're not doing it alone. Again, different sermon, different day. All authority, all power has been given to him and he's with you always. So he's with you, but he's also for you. He's for you. And so we live on mission with Jesus and for Jesus so that more might come to know him. The game plan for our time together this morning is to briefly fly over the five sermons from Friday and Saturday. And it's gonna be a quick flyover because that was like five hours of preaching and it ain't gonna happen right now. All right, I'll spare you that. If you wanna go back and listen, you could do that. But after we do the flyover of the last few days, then we're gonna narrow in on John chapter 18 and finish there this morning with a particular interaction Christ has with Pilate at near the end of his life. Well, as we kinda get off the runway this morning, whenever I get to preach on missional living, and Pastor Tony asked me when he, when he emailed me, hey, would you be interested in coming down, and, and what topic would you want me to do? And hey, how about something on mission, or missional living, and, and I've been studying the Gospel of John, and so I was like, well, I think this would be good for me, and I trust good for this body as well. And so whenever I'm asked to preach on mission, I'm, I'm both excited and concerned, and I'm excited because the Lord knows how much I need to grow in this area. I, I mean that, church. I don't say that in some false humility. I'm not gifted as an evangelist, as people often say. I succumb to the fear of man, I think, more than I overcome it by the power of the Spirit. But I do know this, that whenever the Lord forces me to study His Word, the Spirit of God's going to go at work in my heart, and God's going to convict me and grow me. So I mean it when I say I'm excited to open the Word on this topic, because the good Lord knows that I need it, But I'm concerned as well because I I believe when we come to the topic of evangelism, as it's often called, or living on mission, it's so easy to strong arm or guilt trip believers into living missionally. I mean, how many of you have, no need to raise hands, how many of you have either done it or been it's been done to you where you heard a talk or a sermon or a conference and you, you felt so shamed into, okay, fine, I'll carry tracks in my back pocket. I'll tell five people about Jesus before I go to bed tonight or God's gonna get me with a heavenly two by four. <laughs> All right, fine, fine, I'll do it. And, and the problem is one, God doesn't have your heart at that moment and two, um, it's gonna wear off pretty quick. The moment the guilt and shame go away, you're like okay, fine, I did it, it didn't work until the next conference, the next sermon and then you're guilted again and you do it again and then the cycle continues. My heart's longing and my desire this morning is not to beat you up with convic- conviction It's not to shame you into doing something. My longing, my desire this morning is to lift each of us up to see the infinite worth, the beauty, and the glory of Christ so that we will want to speak of Him, that we will want to make much of Him. For when you value Christ, you will speak of Christ. And so let's walk through these few truths together and see what God has for us. Number one, missional living Missional living is the result of actually loving Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we're gonna camp here for a few minutes because it's so important. We've gotta love Christ. I don't mean some mushy, gushy emotionalism. I mean deep-rooted at the level of your soul, you must love Christ. There's a simple truth that I believe is, is just, it's, 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 it's our experience, it's in the scriptures. We're hardwired by God to talk about that which we love. Do you agree with that? We're hardwired by God to talk about what we love. If I, if I meet you and we're trying to make small talk, I'm gonna talk about what I love. You're gonna learn quickly, my wife's name is Caitlin. We've been married 16 years, I have four boys. They range in ages from 14 down to seven. They're awesome, I'll tell you all about them. Um, I'll tell you about my church because I love my church and if we hang out long enough, you might even learn about my weird hobbies. The things that I do with the spare time that I don't have. How about you? You do the same thing. You tell me about your family, maybe. If you're a grandparent, you might show me pictures of your grandkids. It's what you love. And it naturally comes out of you. There's no plan. There's no like, okay, when I meet so-and-so, make sure to talk about wife. After wife, talk about children. It's just what happens. It's what I love. And so what I love just naturally bubbles to the surface. In John's gospel, in John chapter four, we see a narrative We see a story of this woman and and i want to kind of highlight this woman because i believe that when when we have experienced god's grace in christ we will want to speak of god's grace in christ so let's look at john 4 if you want you can go there if not i'll just kind of rehearse it briefly for you the backstory of john 4 is this woman and maybe you know her as the woman at the well or the woman of samaria and here we have a woman who's a societal outcast, a woman who's been sinned against and who has sinned plenty on her own. A woman broken by the consequences of sin over and over and over. A woman who is used to public humiliation and shame. But God, but God. And to make a long story short, Jesus crosses paths with this woman. In verse four, he has to go through Samaria. He has a divine appointment with this woman at the well. He must go through this town because he has to talk to this particular woman in this particular place. If you know the story, Jesus offers her living water. It's a way of offering her hope because she's hopeless. And this woman, as we'll see throughout our time this morning, she's thoroughly confused, as is often the case when we're talking about spiritual things to carnal people. They just can't process it, so she's confused. She's like, well, if you got water, like water that's gonna make me never thirsty again, I'm never gonna come back to this stinking well again, please, give me a drink. She's still not tracking with Jesus. Jesus offers her gospel hope, he offers her living water. Jesus confronts her sin, he calls out, hey, you go get your husband, I don't have a husband, I know, you've had five, you're living with a man who's not your husband. And then Jesus does something so kind. After confronting her sin, Jesus calls her to worship him. Jesus reveals for the first time in the Gospel of John to this broken woman at a well that he is the Messiah. And he calls her to worship him in spirit and in truth. And what I want to hone in on for this point this morning is this woman's response. This woman in verse 28, after Jesus confronts her After Jesus calls her to worship, this woman leaves her water jar in verse 28 and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? This is this woman's response to the gospel. Are you ready for it? This man just told me all that I've ever done. And you can just tell the people in town. He told you all you've ever done? (laughs) Lady, you're a mess. We all know your story. You're the talk of the town. I mean, the words for you, we probably shouldn't say. You're that kind of person. And this woman has no problem going back into even where she lives amongst those who know her and saying with absolute clarity, hey, come and see. There's a man who's told me all that I've ever done, but here's the point. Christ knows her completely and yet loves her fully. There's no condemnation. I believe this woman in Christ's interaction, she experiences what Paul will say later in Romans, there's no condemnation in Christ. So Christ can tell this woman, hey, I know your story, and I'm still gonna offer you living water. I I know how wicked you are, but I'm still gonna call you to worship me. And in that moment, she experiences the grace of God and she hurries back into her town and she proclaims for all to hear, come and see. And what I find so precious about verse 29 is I don't, she's not even fully convinced yet of who this Jesus guy is. See, this is, what, this is what affection for Christ does. Affection for Christ declares how great and how good he is and you might be like, you know, I got some questions that I'm not sure about yet. I don't have my PhD in gospel yet. But I know this, he knows me and he loves me and I'm no longer condemned and I want all y'all to know it too. I want everybody to know the goodness of no condemnation. If you felt that in your soul, then that should be your longing for everybody else. The gospel is not that God fixed your felt needs. The gospel is that God knows you and does not condemn you because he condemned Jesus in your place. And so this woman As Jesus would say later in the Gospels, he who is forgiven much loves much. So she just declares this absolute love for Christ or her love for Christ compels her to declare, come and see, come and see this man who's told me all that I've ever done and yet he still loves me. He still does not condemn me. You see, brothers and sisters, those who know what they deserve before God and know what they've been given by God in Christ They love much. See, one of the problems that we can come into as mature Christians, old timers in the faith, is we forget that we've been forgiven much. I mean, we'd never say it, but we begin to think that we're actually a little bit better than the bad people out there. We're annoyed by, by those people, those people making our state terrible. The bad ones out there, not us. We're the good ones. I mean, you would never say it, but it might cross your mind. God got a good one when he got me. We can get these kind of, these, these subtle thoughts can creep in of, of our, our embetterments. Brothers and sisters, this is why I think Martin Lloyd-Jones coined the phrase many years ago, preach the gospel to yourself. This is why we must remember and rehearse the gospel on the daily We must be gospel people, saturated with the gospel. This is why in our community groups, we must be people that bring the gospel to each other, not just to the lost, to each other. We must sing gospel-rich songs. Why? Because the gospel is that very thing that wooed you to Christ. It's what caused your affections to be stirred for Christ, and it is that very thing that keeps your affections for him going. When you move past the gospel, your affections for Christ will shrivel up like a dried grape. Your affections for Christ will become small. Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, hear me carefully this morning. God is not interested in intellectual Christianity. You could whoop your Bible. You could know it cover to cover, and so do the demons. You could could have all the brain smarts in the world, but if your affections are not drawn towards Christ and the gospel, if you're not letting who you are and what you've been given by God in Christ continually stoke the affections of your soul, you will become like the Pharisees, hard-hearted and intellectual in your faith. And God is not impressed. It is this gospel goodness and this gospel grace that caused our hearts to be quickened for the first time. And it is that same gospel that causes our affections to continually be stoked. I know I shouldn't tell this story. Children, don't try this at home. I grew up in um, what we call redneck land um, in northeastern Wisconsin. And uh, so we, ate, we hunted and ate everything that moved. And we made giant bonfires in the middle of the woods. And, um, but it's real fun when you pour gasoline on a fire. All right, Don't try it at home. It might blow up your hands. Um, But when you just have this little fire going, you just take gasoline and throw it. Man, it just explodes in the middle of the air. I know some of you just, you think less of me now, but that's okay. (laughs) I still have all my digits. You see, that's what the gospel does to your soul. It's like throwing gasoline on a fire. It causes your soul to say, wow, wow, God, you are great and you are good and I love you. Brothers and sisters, we are hardwired by God to talk about that which we love. And if we love Christ, guess what? We'll talk about it. So then the question has to be asked, not to guilt trip you, but this is what heart work looks like. We have to look at our own hearts. If I'm not willing to speak of Christ, do I love Him? Now, we have to do heart work there, Lord. And if the answer is yes, then then this is where we go. We don't shame one another. We don't guilt one another. We just say, Lord, forgive me for not loving you like I should, Help me to love you better. Would you cause the gospel to come alive again to my soul? That you might stir my affections to love you like I should. Because we must be people that love Christ. For it's when we love him, we will gladly speak of him. That's number one. Number two, the second thing we covered this weekend was missional living demands what I'm going to call gospel fluency. Gospel fluency. And forgive me, I'm dropping unfamiliar phrases on some of you this morning. You know, I'm using phrases like missional living, which we defined as um, living on mission with Jesus and for Jesus so that more might worship Jesus. But now let's talk about gospel fluency because I think sometimes there are key phrases, at least for me, that shape my life. Missional living is one of those phrases. But frankly, gospel fluency has become one of those phrases as well. We all understand the idea of being fluent. According to Webster's Dictionary, fluent means the ability to express oneself easily and articulately. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. I'm a native English speaker. It's the only language that I speak. I'm fluent in English. How about you? I hope so, or you're not hearing me this morning. You might be fluent in another language, but we all know that Spanish 1 don't make you fluent. (laughs) You barely got through the tests, but you're not fluent. See, fluency is this ability to express oneself easily and articulately, and so when we say gospel fluency, what I mean is this, the ability to express gospel truth easily and articulately. You see, we should be gospel people, the gospel should be the language and the culture in which we live, and we can come in and out of gospel conversations with ease, because we're gospel fluent. Now I need to give you a disclaimer right now, okay? What I'm not saying is that you have to wait until you're gospel fluent to live on mission. Because see, one of the lies that we tell ourselves in the flesh is, I don't know enough, so I'm not talking about Jesus. That's a lie, and we don't want to believe that lie, okay? If you've ever learned a foreign language, how do you get better? You've got to practice it. You might even do a full immersion class, or you might actually move out of your country into another country where nobody speaks your mother tongue so that now you're forced to learn to use the language. You see, all the reading, all the book smarts, all the test taking, you're not fluent. I did all that for a lot of different things. I'm not fluent in any language but English. If you're gonna be fluent, you have to practice it, and so it is with gospel fluency. So church, hear me carefully. Our lack of gospel fluency shouldn't cause us to stop sharing the gospel. It should propel us to share it more so that we'll become fluent in sharing it. See, that's what God's after. Not, okay, wait until you take all the classes in gospel, then go do it. No, just start because you love him, speak of him. The more you do it, the better you get at it. And we become a people that's truly fluent in the gospel. I just wanna highlight a few examples from Christ's life. If anybody was gospel fluent, it was Jesus. He, he, and what I love about how Christ shared the gospel is he never does it the same way twice. Think about that. Read through the, one of the gospels. If you have time, listen to one of them this week. And listen with this in mind. How does Jesus share the gospel? It's never the same. It's always different. He's gospel fluent, he's, he's, he's asking questions, he knows his audience, and he's, he's never changing the gospel, but he knows what they need to hear. Now he has a corner on the market, because he's God. So we, have a, we may not know exactly what to say, we may not know exactly what's in their heart, but we shouldn't be people that just have one canned approach to the gospel. So that's not what fluency does. Fluency is that we can have conversation after conversation after conversation, and that's the example of Christ, and I want to show you that. In John chapter 3, gospel fluency looks like Jesus going deep, fast. Remember Nicodemus? We're not going to read the whole story. But in John 3, Nicodemus comes to Christ by night, which is interesting. Um, He's a a little bit afraid to admit he actually wants a conversation with this guy named Jesus. Jesus. And, and Nicodemus affirms Jesus as some rabbi, a teacher that's been sent from God. And we, we could unpack that later if you want to. But Jesus, just right out of the gate, right out of the gate. I mean, Gospel 101. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know about y'all, but that's like, Jesus, that was the best thing? Like, Couldn't you have said something like, God loves you? Couldn't you have said something like, um, I'm going to die for you? Like, wouldn't that have been like a better approach? Obviously not. What did Nicodemus need to know? He needed to know that his heart was lost in its sins. You see, Nicodemus was a self-righteous religious man. Any self-righteous religious people in the world today? Yeah, they're, they're all around us. You see, you tell a self-righteous religious person something about faith and they might conclude, yeah, I've already got that. I'm already good enough. I don't need anything. You've got your religion, I've got mine. So what does Jesus do? He goes straight to the doctrine of regeneration. That wasn't seminary, that was evangelism. It was what this man needed in that moment. Nicodemus, if your heart's not made new, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus is like, first off, he's totally confused. How do I get back inside my mama and come back out? <laughs> like, Jesus, this is, you've lost me already. And Jesus doesn't back down. He just repeats it again. If you're not born of the water and the Spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. See, what Jesus is doing is Jesus is addressing the need of Nicodemus' heart. He's the need of Nicodemus' soul but Jesus is willing to go deep even when he shares the gospel. And I find that to be insightful because would you agree that in our culture today, we've truncated, we've minimized, and we've distilled the gospel to its lowest common denominator. We've made the gospel so faint, it's even hard to determine, is it actually gospel? I mean, it's almost like somebody says, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And there's the gospel. You're like, no, that's not really it. No, not really Now, even in 1 Corinthians 15, we have some beautiful gospel phrases there of Christ Jesus dying for your sins according to the scriptures, being raised in the third day according to the scriptures. Praise God, there's there's like the gospel in its kernel form. But brothers and sisters, the gospel is much deeper and much wider than that. And we must not be okay with, with preschool level gospel understandings all the way to the grave. We should be people that are just digging deeper and deeper into God's glorious gospel for the good of our own souls, because remember, when you dig into the gospel, your love for Christ is awakened, but as you dig into the gospel, you're now more equipped to take that gospel to people that don't know Him. And instead of being a one-size-fits-all salesman, now you, you can actually craft the gospel message, which by the way, the gospel never changes, but its packaging might change, and Jesus in masterful gospel fluency, tells Nicodemus, Nicodemus, what you need is a divine heart transplant. You see, you think that you're righteous before God based on your works, but your heart's desperately wicked and you need a new heart. That's that's one way we learn gospel fluency from Christ. Let me show you another way. In John chapter four, we've already mentioned this story briefly, gospel fluency looks like going after sin. In John chapter four, Jesus meets this woman at the well and he offers her living water. He says in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and what it is that I'm saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And so they go back and forth and like you're gonna hear me say over and over, when you offer the gospel, the living water, the hope of Christ to those who don't know him, you can be, be, be sure they'll be confused. Because they're, they're carnal. Jesus would tell Nicodemus, you can't understand spiritual things because you're not a spiritual man. You're You're still carnal in your sins. You're lost in your sins. And so we can expect the woman's confused. They go back and forth. Jesus offers her that she can worship him in spirit and truth. But notice what Jesus does to this woman. He doesn't shy away from the hard things of the gospel. He offers her hope. But he then takes this sharp 90-degree turn in verse 18, or verse 17. Jesus says to her, go call your husband. They're having this conversation about living water. They're at a well. It kind of makes sense. Water, I'm offering you water. All right, so far, so good. And then Jesus is like, hey, lady, go get your husband. What? Where'd that come from? Well, see, gospel fluency means you're always going to get to the level of man's need, and that's called sin. You see, Jesus could offer her hope all day long, but hope for what? Hope for a better quality of life? Hope to be a better person? This woman actually had hope that Jesus would meet her felt needs. If I don't ever have to come back to this well again, hallelujah, give me some of that water and I'll never be thirsty again physically. What a great way that would be to live my life. She's missing it. So what does Jesus do? He says, go call your husband. And and you may know the story. The woman says, oh, I don't have a husband. I love how sinners, and I put myself in this category, how we duck and we dodge the conviction. Yeah, I don't have a husband, ish. And Jesus says to her, yeah, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you are now with is not your husband. What you've said is true. And this woman knows she's now dead to rights. You see, brothers and sisters, when we are going to be—if we are going to be gospel fluent people—we can't tiptoe around the reality of sin. Because after all, why do people need a savior? If all we offer is Christ as the savior without 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 bringing home the reality that all people are sinful, what are they being saved from? Nothing. They don't need him. But once there's conviction of sin, oh my goodness! Give me the Savior. I mean, the, the age-old illustration, it, it's just so classic, it fits every time. If right now I throw you a life jacket, you're gonna be like, that was weird. We're sitting in an auditorium, one, why do you have a life jacket? Two, I don't want it. But now if you're on the Titanic sinking, oh my goodness, give me that life jacket. You see, gospel fluency is willing to go after this thing called sin, because it's when conviction of sin sets in that the sinner says, I need Christ. And so Christ is willing to go after sin. And gospel fluency is willing to nuance and navigate that conversation, but at some point we will press towards sin. Well, under this learning from Jesus and gospel fluency, just simply put, gospel fluency looks like knowing the right thing to share at the right time with the right person. We want to be gospel fluent people. Can you imagine going to a doctor, and he only has one remedy for everything? He'd go out of business quick. He's gotta have more than one tool in his box. And as we are gospel-fluent people, the gospel never changes, but you might be talking to somebody, and the way you need to communicate the gospel is gonna look a little bit different, and I believe we learned that from Jesus. Jesus knows how to nuance the gospel each time so that no evangelistic encounter looks the exact same, but the gospel never changes. And so missional living demands gospel fluency. So remember, brothers and sisters, what motivates missional living is love for Christ. Don't forget this. What motivates missional living is love for Christ. It always comes from a heart that loves God, and yet affection for Christ should compel us to know the gospel better so that we can talk about it more faithfully. Do you get that? Know it better so you can talk about it more faithfully. Missional living demands gospel fluency, and if we've been saved by the gospel, we should be fluent in the gospel. Well, number three this morning, and this is our final review from the weekend, Gospel fluency presses you towards need and not comfort. And we're going to go a little bit quickly over this so we can make sure to have time for our final point. But gospel fluency presses you towards need and not comfort. That statement alone brings me conviction because I love comfort. How about you? You should say yes because you do. We all love comfort. It's why diets don't last very long because they're uncomfortable. It's why New Year's resolutions fizzle out on the second, because they're not comfortable. It's why we don't rise early and have our devotions. It's not comfortable. I mean, we literally go down the just life, life decision after life decision. I make the majority of life decisions based on what's comfortable. Honestly, from the shoes I wear, to the clothes I wear, to the car I drive, to the house I live in, I wanna be comfortable, how about you? And when we embrace the gospel, what we're embracing is a Savior who's going to press us towards need, not comforts. Throughout the gospel of John, Jesus is intentionally pressing into needy people. We talked about John 4. It's such a great text. This adulterous, half-breed, Jew, Samaritan woman, yeah, she is grossly needy. And Jesus is like, yeah, I'm going to go talk to her. John 5, this man at the pool of Siloam, been sitting there for 38 years, just, we know what homeless, crippled people look like and smell like, and that's this man by the pool, and nobody wants to go near him. Nobody will take him down into this mystical water when it's moving that maybe he could get healed, and Jesus goes right to him. John 8, this adulterous woman that the Pharisees bring to Christ so that he'll condemn her, no, Jesus doesn't condemn her. He exposes their hypocrisy, and he tells the woman, I don't condemn you, go sin no more. John nine, a man born blind, Jesus approaches him, heals him and walks away. And it's not till the end of the chapter the man even knows who Christ is. Jesus consistently goes towards need, not comfort. Church, what's the point? The love of Christ propels him towards those with great physical and spiritual need. After all, Luke chapter five, verse 42 says, I have not come to call the righteous, but Sinners of repentance. You see, I mean, we know from the rest of Scripture, no one's actually righteous. But people who think they're righteous, the self-righteous, the affluent, those who have their act together, yeah, I don't need Jesus. I don't need anything. Not the sinner. Those who have been broken by the sin of this world and by the pain of this world, oh, they're ripe for the gospel. But we have a word for them needy and if we're honest we've been there maybe we are there needy people in a needy world but missional living looks like going towards those who have been broken by sin and offering the hope of the gospel to them missional living looks like going towards people that have been broken by just the brokenness of the world the lame and the cripple and the diseased and the downcast and the hurting and offering them the hope that christ alone gives oh, saints, aren't you glad that Jesus moved towards need, not comfort, when he left heaven to come to this pathetic place called earth? Aren't you glad he left comfort and moved towards need? And see, that's what he's doing for you and me. He's saying, now, hey, here's what I did for your salvation. Now, my followers, I want you to go towards need, not comfort, so that more would know Christ. God so loved the world, He gave His Son. This, this, is what the, this, is, this is what gospel love compelled God to do. So now, what is God's love requiring of us? I think we could rightly conclude from Scripture that the gospel is pressing us towards people in physical and spiritual need. i ask you some questions. Who has God put in your life that is needy? Who has God put in your life that you'd rather not spend time with? Who has God put in your life that straight up is annoying? You just try to avoid them. Who has God put in your life that you know you need to love in the name of Jesus? Growing up, uh, we had this neighbor, once we moved from Wisconsin to Illinois, we had this neighbor who was... um, she was difficult, to say the least. Maybe you have one of those. Hopefully, you're not that person. You shouldn't be. <laughs> we went back on a trip to Wisconsin, and my parents bought, I think, three little trees down for this, this neighbor woman. And she, we gave these three little saplings to the neighbor because we knew she wanted them. And she literally receives these trees from us and says, thank you. I'm going to plant them between our houses so when they, get, when they get big, I never have to see you again. That was 20 years of this kind of hostility with the neighbor. And yet I remember as a kid and my parents and laboring, how do we love this neighbor? Because in the flesh, we're like, done with you, lady. You wanna treat us that way? Fine. But actually, the Lord says, love your enemy, do good to those who hurt you. So there are people that God's gonna place in your life that they don't like you, but really it's because they don't like Jesus, and they need the hope of the gospel, and in our flesh, we want to run away from them. But see, the gospel presses you towards need, not comfort, so then we must be willing to press into needy and broken people. Praise God, that's what God did for us. And that's what he calls us to do for others. Brothers and sisters, gospel-fluent people are people who are continually shaped by the gospel, The gospel is just not some message that we study intellectually. The gospel is the power of God of the salvation and sanctification. And as we dig into this glorious gospel, and the gospel is continually shaping our lives and our culture, it will propel us towards need, not comfort, because that's what Jesus did, and that's what He wants of us. Now to number four. So now I can get preaching for real. All right. No longer review. All right, John uh, John 18, would you turn there? We're gonna hit John 18 briefly, and then we'll be done. Gospel fluency declares absolute truth. Gospel-fluent people are people that are committed to God's absolute truth. In John 18, we find a man who might best be categorized as a skeptic. He's a man by the name of Pilate, and I'm just gonna walk you through kind of hitting the highlights of this story. In John chapter 18, verse 33, we see a man by the name of Pilate. He's a political ruler. You might call him a king of sorts. And he's inquiring about Jesus' position. So Pilate enters his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Interesting question from an interesting man. Obviously, Pilate's not that interested in Jesus' king being God king, he's more interested in, hey, I've heard a rumor that you are saying you're king of the Jews. And if that's true, I have a problem with that because actually I'm the king of the Jews. And so there can't be two kings. That's really what's going on. We'll see that in the text. So Pilate's inquiring about Jesus' position, but he's really not thinking spiritually yet. But notice verse 34, Jesus never stops living on mission. He's asked a question From Pilate, are you the king of the Jews? What does Jesus answer? Verse 34, Jesus answers, do do you say this of your own accord or do others say it to you about me? Hmm, what's Jesus doing? Jesus is taking every conversation, even this one, a few hours before he's put on a cross and he's thinking missionally. He's thinking, there's a person who needs to worship me. There's somebody who needs their eyes opened by the power of the gospel. So I think it's a great example of how we should live our lives day in, day out. Lord, who are you putting before me? And could this conversation become about Jesus? So instead of answering Pilate's question, Jesus asks him a question, and it's actually meddling in Pilate's heart. Do you hear what he says? Do you say this of your own accord, or is it just hearsay? Jesus is wanting to know, Pilate, what do you think? It's a great question, isn't it? What do you think, Pilate? So in verse 35, Pilate, this political king, he's now on the defensive. Pilate answers, am I a Jew? Which clearly he's not. Romans did not like being associated as Jewish people. Am I a Jew? Your own nation and your chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Just classic, classic carnality. Get the attention off of me back on you right what have you done all right I, don't don't you turn this on me jesus we're talking about you right now and so jesus in verse 36 says jesus answers my kingdom is not of this world if my kingdom were of this world my servants would have been fighting that i might not be delivered over to the jews but my kingdom is not of this world I just love this. Here, Jesus actually provides true spirituality, a true spiritual answer to Pilate, but does it in a way that's so winsome. It's like he's saying, Pilate's like, so who are you? And Jesus just says, hey, Pilate, chill out. Chill out. I'm not a rival to you. I'm not an earthly king. My kingdom's not of this world. So he makes it clear, Pilate, I'm not coming after your throne. Don't worry about that. Yes, I am a king, but no, I'm not a political threat to you. But he also does something that's masterful. He says, if I wanted to be, my servants would have already stopped it. Do you see that? He's like, yeah, I'm not a ruler of this. My kingdom not of this world. But if it was, I wouldn't be here right now. Because my servants, my angels, they would have stopped me from ever being delivered to you by the Jews. We would have taken care of that problem a long time ago. So I'm no political threat to you. My kingdom's not of this earth. And so Pilate answers, so you are a king. You can begin to see the confusion again in Pilate. When Jesus declares something spiritual, those who are in the flesh, they can't receive it. So he's like, so so let me get this straight, you actually are a king? And then Jesus returns in verse 37. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king? Look at that. You say that I'm a king. For this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. You see, Jesus goes from nebulous king talk, king kingdom language. It's all good. It's all true. To now he's going to do what I call meddling. He's going to get down to the level of his heart, and he's going to make it real clear. Nicodem- or uh, Pilate, I'm not so concerned about this whole king business that you want to argue with me about, but what I do want you to know is there's something about me that's true, and everyone who believes in me will practice what is true, and he's going to go there with Pilate. You see, Jesus is going to declare to Pilate his purpose in coming I don't want to beat a dead horse here, saints, but listen carefully. Gospel fluency always requires going after the heart. Pilate can no longer hide behind a theoretical conversation about a king and an invisible kingdom. Jesus takes a sharp 90-degree turn, and he's going to say, okay, Pilate, let me tell you something. I was born for this purpose. For this purpose, I have come into the world to testify or bear witness about the Exclusive, singular truth. Jesus makes an absolute truth claim, and I've come with a purpose. Jesus doesn't say something that's just true for the Jews. You notice, did you notice what he says after that? Everyone, including you, Pilate, everyone who listens to my voice is of the truth. Jesus makes it absolutely clear that he's going after Pilate's heart. You know what, Pilate, you want to talk about king and kingdoms? I'm going to talk to you about what truth is. I'm the truth, and we know this from the rest of John's gospel. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and nobody can come to God apart from him. So Jesus doesn't leave the conversation open for debate. Jesus isn't waffling back and forth about some political ideology. Jesus clearly declares truth to Pilate in a way that Pilate can understand. And so what does Pilate say back here we see a sinner squirming. He's a, he is so uncomfortable right now. He just says in verse 38, Pilate says to him, What is truth? Does that not sound familiar? Satan's tactics haven't changed for 2,000 years, the world's not changing. There's nothing new under the sun. In our post-Christian culture, we have become a post-truth culture, meaning that, oh, we're pluralistic, we're relativistic. That's how truth should be treated today. That's a bunch of crazy business. We don't believe in that. Hey kids, try telling your math teacher truth is relative. No, you failed the test. Try telling somebody that, hey, going to med school is relative. I'm just going to be a doctor because I want to be. I'll make up my own answers. Yeah, good luck. We don't believe in relative truth. This is a ploy of Satan to cause people to to deny the gospel. It's exactly the card that Pilate pulls on Jesus when he comes under gospel conviction. Instead of repenting and believing, he plays the what is truth card. It's the exact same thing we could expect today. Because when we proclaim the gospel, we're not having a conversation or a dialogue or a, hey, let's meet in the middle. Hey, let's see what's true for you and what's true for me. We're saying, no, thus says the Lord. The God of heaven has spoken. He's made it known how we can be right with him. You can either submit to it or not, but it is true regardless of what you think. And the sinner who comes under a conviction doesn't want to say, I hate Jesus. And I refuse to submit to him. So what do they say? Oh, well, truth is relative. What's true for you is not true for me. And Jesus makes it so clear here. Truth is not relative. Truth is not changing. This glorious gospel of Christ is the one and only means by which sinners are made right with God. Brothers and sisters, I know you know this, but it must be said again and again and again and again we must humbly and yet boldly hold to the simple truth that Christ Jesus is both Lord and Savior for all people. Don't bow to the cultural pressure. It was alive and well in Jesus' day to make truth relative. Do not cave when people call you bigoted and proud, even when somebody like Pilate can kill you for it. Don't waffle when they say evil things about you. Don't become discouraged when they say what is truth. This is par for the course, this side of heaven. Just be willing to side with God. When somebody says you're a buffoon, you believe what? God said it. I can do no other. This is all we got. God has made it clear. If you got a problem with that, take it up with God. But don't waffle Don't compromise. Gospel-fluent people are convinced of the truth of the Word of God, and they'll declare it every time. Well, brothers and sisters, as we wrap up this morning, I want to finish where we started. Your love for Jesus changes everything. Missional living, gospel fluency, they're only possible if and when Christ has captured our affection. When you find Christ to be infinitely lovely, you will long for everyone else to know him. And so this morning, I want to finish with an encouragement, an encouragement for you to pray. I'm going to challenge you, and I mean challenge you, to pray every day this week three simple things. You ready? Here you go. Number one, pray that your love for Christ would increase so that you would want to talk about him. Pray that. Pray it. God is going to answer it, because God wants you to love Christ more. So pray it. Pray, God, increase my love for Christ. Number two, pray that your gospel fluency would increase so that you could talk better about Christ. Pray, God, help me to be more fluent in the gospel. Teach me the gospel better, because I want to talk about you more. Pray it. Number three, pray that God would bring you an opportunity to make Jesus known Among someone who does not know him yet. And I mean it. Pray that last one. Because you'll leave that one out because you're afraid God might answer it. So pray it. And here's the point, saints. I believe, based on this book, that when you pray these prayers, God will answer it. Because God delights in answering prayers that glorify his name. You see, we often pray for things like, hey God, fix my problems. Hey God, make my quality of life better. Hey God, give me a new car. Hey God. And that's fine, he may do that, but we're not sure if those prayers are his will or not. But you know what we know is his will? That we live on mission. You know what we know is his will? That we love him more. So start praying, Lord, help me to better live on mission. Help me to better love Christ God, would you even this week bring somebody across my path that I can talk about Jesus to who doesn't yet know you? And you watch God answer. And as a body of believers, we will grow in missional living for the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father,